Good morning. How's everyone? Good. My name's Eric. If you haven't met me, we're so glad you came to join us. Uh, just a few announcements before we go ahead and get started. Uh, if you are a current member, we're doing what's called a member reaffirmation. So that means you're reaffirming that you're a member at this church. If you're wondering what that is, it's not a country club or a handshake. Um, the best explanation I've gotten is that when you have a uh, when you're hosting people and you have a guest, uh, you don't ask them to clean anything or do anything. But when you have family, you say, hey, grab a mop, um, clean that, take out the trash, put away the kids. There is this idea that they're a part of the family and part of the work that goes on. So becoming a member is saying, man, we want to grab a mop, a broom. We want to be a part of the family. We want to do uh, what, what that takes. And we want to be with the leadership and, and God moving and leading. And so the reaffirmation is going to start next week. We have a lot of classes. The dates are up there just to go through the changes in the statement of faith, in the bylaws, the expectations of the leadership and the expectations of us. And so uh, we'll be running those classes on Wednesdays and Sundays uh, for you to have a reaffirmation to do that. And the bylaws also ask us to do that. If you're not a member, um, the date for you is on October uh, 16th. We will have a meeting so you can see, you know, what do we believe? Who are we? Uh, what, are, what are we asking you to do? What, are, what, are, what can you think or require of us and the whole thing? So just mark your calendars for that. And then also know that uh, we kick off officially this Sunday. So we have Bible studies and connection classes and just encourage you to get connected to other believers, other Christians that are um, going through God's word and growing uh, in their faith. And so just an opportunity to do that and just think through that. And there'll be an opportunity to hang out. We'll have food out there after the service. Uh, so I encourage you just to keep growing in the community here. Um, so if we just take a, a second and reflect, we, we know that uh, today is 9-11. We know uh, that it was a very tragic uh, event in our history. Um, I, I think the best way to summarize that is sometimes God gives us a glimpse of pure evil. And we get a reminder that there is um, true evil in the world. Um, and I think that reminder should encourage us that life can be short. It can be taken. It's not promised. And therefore, we need to share with as many people as we can of who God is and what Christ has done um, and celebrate that. And just know uh, that God was on the throne then. He's on the throne now. He's still with us. And though we mourn the loss of those we love, we also take comfort in knowing that we have Christ. So we're going to pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump into Matthew chapter 1. Uh, dear Jesus, we thank you for those who uh, died trying to save people in that tragic event. Uh, we thank you for those who know you and believed in you, um, had comfort knowing that heaven would be their home through that tragedy. Um, it's our prayer that we would have uh, just an urgency of sharing who you are and what you've done because uh, Satan is real, evil is real, uh, sin is real, and people need you to overcome sin and Satan. The only way to overcome that is through Christ. And it's our prayer that we would hold you high, we would trust you, uh, we would mourn knowing you're there to comfort us, to love us, to lead us. And as we go into the book of Matthew, that you are there um, always. You are with us. You keep your promise. You lift us up. You walk us through. You guide us through each moment. So we just pray that your word would comfort us, speak to us, and they'd be your words and not mine. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, so you can go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 1. Um, if you're newer with us, it might be helpful to go back and look at our First Samuel series and then also look at our um, transitional series through uh, the promised king because Matthew has so much imagery and it has so much going on. I want you to catch the fullness of what's being communicated in the text. And so just a couple things for us to look through and think through uh, before we get there is Matthew, you know, there's four gospels, is a gospel written primarily to a group of Jews. So it's going to have a lot of Jewish analogies and examples so that they understand what he's trying to do is God kept his promise that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of everything. And here's the proof of, of those claims, of those statements. So that those fun names you see in chapter one, I know you guys are so sad we didn't go through every name. Um, it's there. Think of that genealogy as a resume. It's the resume saying, look, this is who Jesus comes from. All the way back to this is Abraham, this is David, these promises were made, God's keeping his promise, and, and it might come at an unusual time, it might not come in the way you think it would come, but God kept his promise from Genesis 3 all the way up to now. And so these names are important, but it's a Jewish king from a Jewish lineage, and it's important because he's saying, look, God keeps his promise. God's doing exactly what he said. And the reason that might be a little odd is you got to think um, the announcement of Jesus comes after Israel's probably been in exile without a Davidic type king for over probably 600 years. So imagine you're 600 years and you're thinking to yourself, you're under Roman rule, you're in your land, but you're not really, you're paying high taxes, you're under someone else's culture, someone else's gods, all of these things. Has God forgotten us? Is God going to keep his word? Are we forgotten? Does God no longer love us? Will there no longer be a king? Will there no longer be a savior? And so Matthew writes out, no, God keeps his promise. And the fulfillment of that promise starts in your first quote. He quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verses 14 through 15. He says, this is the fulfillment of that promise. It states this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So literally, that prophecy is given to Isaiah. And you have to think, um, in that context, Isaiah's written, Israel's sinning, they're rebelling against the Lord. They're like, we don't want you to be our king. We want to trust the world. We want to go to them. So God gives them consequences, and, and kingdoms overthrow them, and they're under their rule. But also in Isaiah are these, are these kind of future comforts. Hey, God is going to forgive you of your sin. God's going to make a payment for you. That's why we went through Isaiah 53. He's going to send a savior for all these sins you're committing. But also, he'll restore the kingdom. So we went through Psalm 2, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, all these things. So he's having both. So this is what he's telling Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. He's like, hey, look, give me a sign. What's a sign? He says, here will be the sign that God's still with you. And the sign shall come from a virgin. And his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Now, here's the important part. It is one of the kind of guideposts that helps us see that they're talking about Jesus. Is look at verse 15. It says, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Super clear, huh? No, let's explain it. So you look through that, what he's saying? He's going to be born in poverty. 
Right? Because the land has been desolate. It's been overtaken. The farmers aren't there to tend to it. So what's left? Curds and honey. So he's saying this king, he's going to be born from a virgin during a time of poverty and exile. So then he's saying the consequences of your disobedience is going to leave you in exile, in poverty. And I'm going to send a king in the midst of that poverty to remind you, I am with you. Now, some people don't see Isaiah 7 as messianic or about Christ. Two things. I think it's a big deal that Matthew does. And I think it fits the context that he's born of a virgin, he's called Emmanuel, and that he's born in a time of poverty post-exile. So when you look at that, he's, this is that sharp reminder, oh, wow, God's keeping his promise. And he's coming, and it, 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 Jesus is born in poverty, isn't it? Born in a manger. Father's a carpenter, young parents. And so this is how God decides to carry out his promise. Now, here's the problem. And I think they struggle, we struggle, is we have an expectation of Jesus. And when Jesus doesn't meet that expectation, we get angry at him. Because the Jewish expectation is that he would come with a throne. He would come with a sword. He would come with an army. And this is why they're constantly through the book of Matthew going, he's not a king. He's a carpenter. He's from Galilee. He was born in a manger. And so what you're going to see is this tension between the king they want and the king that Christ is. You know, we have a similar tension. We want Jesus to be a political figure. We want him to be our buddy. We want him to be that affirmation that agrees with the things that we like. Essentially, we want to be the king and want him to be the servant. Israel's struggling with the same problem. They want him to kill Rome. They want him to leave bloodshed behind and say, you will bow to us. God says, I'm keeping my promise, just not the way you think. So it requires even more evidence. Well, how, how does this work? He's like, well, if you go back into chapter one and you look, uh, the genealogy highlights two names. In verse one, son of David, son of Abraham. He gives these two names. He's like, look, he is the king and he comes from David's lineage. Second Samuel 7 walks through that through David's throne, that kingdom will reign forever. He's saying he is a king. So it's important not to be lost. Matthew is making it very clear. He is a king, but this king is coming to save you from your sins. But where do you gather that? Well, look right in verse 21. She will bear a son. You shall call him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. So you have to ask yourself the question, what's the better king? A king that gives you high taxes, sends your sons out to war, puts your daughters to work, and, and maybe temporarily saves you from war, but leads you to hell. Or a king that goes and dies and pays for you and allows you to be with him for eternity. Who's the greater king? The one who makes a payment for eternity, true? Yeah, so th this is the tension that's in the text. Is they're, they're thinking about it differently. He's trying to say, hey, yes, he is a king even though he doesn't have an army and he's not sitting on a throne and he doesn't have a sword, but he's the better king. He's the perfect king. He's the king that's going to pay for your sins. And I got it. That doesn't make sense. But look at his lineage. Look at his genealogy. Look at his family tree. He's a son of David. He's a king. Now, he has a king, but he also has the land because a kingdom needs land. So this is our second character. Look at 
Abraham, right? So Abraham is saying, son of Abraham. Well, Genesis 3 starts this. And these, these are the line we got to carry out. Matthew's trying to make it clear. From the beginning, God has kept his word. He keeps his promises. It's just not in our timing, and he doesn't execute it in ways that we would think and we would like. Right? Genesis 3, he makes the first promise. He tells Satan, from the seed of the woman, your head will be crushed. So from that point forward, they look for the snake crusher. The next figure you see is Abraham. He says, look, you're going to bless all the nations. You're going to be a blessing to all the people, and you're going to inherit this land. Your people will have this land, and then David will rule in that land. And then from his throne will reign forever. You'll have a Messiah. You'll have a king. So you have Jesus and the land. All of it is together. But if you miss Abraham, you miss what's happening with Christ. Okay? Here's, here's what's crazy. People now, they think, because it's told that Abraham will bless the nations. And people want to read that and say, yeah, and Jesus is son of Abraham. Therefore, we need to go give people t-shirts and food and blankets. And that's blessing the nations. And the question is, if you bless people with a material gift, but they're going to hell, is that really a blessing? Is that what it means to be a blessing people? You're like, Eric, you're making this up. I'm not. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 7, you need to see this. How does the Bible talk about these things? And these aren't trick questions. We're not trying to fool anybody. Verse 7, it says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, God's word, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So Abraham was told the gospel. Well, what's the gospel? Well, do we remember when Abraham took his son up to the altar to sacrifice his son before the Lord? And the Lord says, no, I will provide the sacrifice, the offering for the payment of sins. He says, Abraham was told that there would be someone, God would provide the payment for the sins of people. Keep looking. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So we already can tell it's talking about the gospel. Now look at verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what's the blessing? Faith. Am I making that up? Give you guys a second to think about it. The, the blessing is that God makes a way for sinners to be with him through his son Jesus. He provides the payment. So when you see son of Abraham, He's not getting to the kingship so much as he's providing the payment. The gospel's been reached. The one who's here to take away the sins of the world has been provided. However, he's also a king. Genesis 17, 5-6 says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Okay, so we, we have to understand, Matthew is making the point about King Jesus loud and bold and huge. But he's saying, this king pays for your sins. This king dies for you. This king does what you can't do for yourself. This king takes care of your eternity. This king truly loves you. This is the king you needed to trust all along. 
So you got to think if you're Joseph and Mary, you haven't heard from God in hundreds of years, you're in exile, and now all of a sudden God speaks and says, the king, you're going to be in charge, you're going to raise a king that's going to save the people from their sins. You think that would sound a little crazy? Absolutely. So what we're seeing is God keeps his promise. And this next part, faithful servants, is that God uses ordinary people through extraordinary means. God uses ordinary people like us to fulfill his promise, but he does it in his timing and he does it his way and he can use any kind of person. If you look through the genealogy, I don't, I don't want to get lost in it because there's all these theories and fun stuff and weird names, but you look at verse 6 and one of the interesting things, it says, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, catch this, by the wife of Uriah. Jesus' genealogy has adultery mixed in there. That should encourage us. Jesus had a crazy family tree too, right? And if we're being honest, we all have a crazy one. Like you don't want to show people. You're like, hey, I can't, I don't, I don't, some of us don't even know who we came from. And so in one sense, this is super encouraging that Mary and Joseph come from this line. Jesus comes through this line of imperfect people. Now here's the thing. When we get the faithful servants, what we, what we like to do is we like to look at Mary and go, wow, look at how amazing she is. Look at Joseph. Look how amazing he is. How could they do this? That's not the point of the story. Okay? Ask yourself this question. How amazing does God have to be that they would say yes to this mission? It's what it says about God, not what it says about Mary. Because when we continue to read it through that lens, you're like, I could never do that. That's the point. It's not about how do we think we could do it. It's do I trust God so much that I will do this crazy thing? That I will trust him in this way? And so when we look at Mary, when we look at Joseph, we're seeing people that wholly trust God, that he's going to keep his promise from Genesis 3 to Genesis 15 to 2 Samuel 7, to Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 53, to this moment. He's going to keep his promise and we're going to trust him. No matter what the consequences might be. Now, consequences, what do I mean by that? Think through some of this, okay? Verse 18 gives us some context. It says, when his mother, Mary, had been betrothed. Okay, so in a Jewish wedding, you actually do this cool thing where you're like almost married first, where you say your vows, you make promises to each other, you commit your lives to each other, and then you take about a year to work on being the person that will be able to uphold those promises. Pretty cool, huh? So they're in that process. They've already promised to wed each other. And just remember this imagery, it'll matter later on in the Gospels is that the father of the groom will watch his son. And when he sees that his son is ready to fulfill that promise, he then says, okay, you're ready. Go get your bride. Beautiful imagery for the rest of the book. Anyways, you work through that. So they're in this covenant. And so now she's risking, literally, you read the Old Testament. Do you remember, we're going to read later when it says the, Jesus meets the woman in adultery 
And it says, cast the first stone if you haven't sinned. You want to know why? Because adultery was punishable by stoning. And so all of a sudden, this young teenage girl is going to have a baby before marriage, before the final part, the consummation of that marriage. There's no guarantee that she's not going to pay a heavy price for this. And somehow she has to go to her husband and say, yeah, I know it's there, but like, I didn't cheat. I promise it was the Holy Spirit. That's risky, isn't it? And it's not because she's great. It's because Christ, because God is great. They're trusting the Lord through this. Saying, okay, God, is this what you want me to do? Might lose everything. I might sound crazy. Um, Quickly, as we walk through this, this is also where you see um, some people would put Mary in what's called the immaculate conception, not the immaculate reception. That's a football play by the Steelers in the 70s, okay? I saw some of the guys like, what? No, conception, baby. And, and this is the argument from a, from a Catholic standpoint, is that in order for Jesus to be perfect, that the mom had to be perfect. You know what the problem with that is? Well, then her mom has to be perfect, and her mom, and her mom, right? It's what's called an infinite regress. You have to have an infinite series of perfections. Well, her mom had to be perfect, and her mom, and her mom, and her mom, and her mom. You see that problem? You can listen to the sermon later. So, you're working through that. that that's not what the text says. There has to be a first cause, right? Christ is the only one who is perfect. She is not. She is a young girl. She is sin. She's a sinner. And essentially, God's saying, will you trust me in this? That through you, through the seed of the woman, Satan will be defeated. Sins will be paid for. And he will ultimately make all things right in the end. So if that's you this morning, what you can kind of think through is, is God asking you to do something crazy? Where he's like, you know what, just trust me. Then marriage your person. Where you can look at Mary and say, man, if she could trust God to have this baby and then raise him all the way to the cross, that should give me hope for whatever I think maybe God is asking me. Then you have Joseph. He didn't sign up for this. He didn't sign up to to be wedded to a woman who's going to be cast in this light of adultery and scandal. When he said yes, she was not pregnant. And now all of a sudden he has this dilemma. And the text is clear. He doesn't want to put her to death. That's why he's saying he wants to, doesn't want to shame her. He wants to do it quietly. And if you can learn anything from Joseph, catch this word in verse 20. This is very subtle. It says, but as he considered these things. He didn't see the belly. He didn't hear the conversation. Boom, divorce, gone. It says he considered. He considered. What do you consider? Maybe, maybe something's going on. Maybe God's trying to tell me something. Maybe, maybe there's a chance that God has a purpose. Maybe there's a chance God's doing something. How many times do we just think nothing good can come of this? And we don't even consider what God might be doing. It's a fair question, isn't it? So Joseph considers these things. And here's where I want you to focus on Joseph. Is he, it's not fair that he has to now take this burden. And it's not fair that now he's going to be cast in the light of adultery and scandal and shame. But it says that the Lord went to him. And he said, do not fear. 
Do not fear. Verse 20. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived is from the Holy Spirit. You shall call him Jesus. Verse 21. He will save the people from their sins. Just as okay. I trust the Lord. I will go through this. So for you here this morning, kind of the question is, do you feel like God's put you in an unfair situation? Where he's asked you to forgive someone that doesn't deserve it. He's asked you to love someone that doesn't deserve it. He's asked you maybe to be embarrassed or shamed for your Christianity. He's asking you to take the consequence of something. You say, that's not my fault. That's not my problem. And God says, will you trust me? Will you take the shame and embarrassment? Will you take the hardship that comes with this? Because I am with you and I paid for you. I'm your king. I'm your savior. Will you trust me in this way? Then Joseph's your guy. Because that's essentially what he's doing. This undeserved chaos. He just trusts the Lord. And he walks through it. And they do that because of who, now our last part here, is who Christ is. Because of who Jesus is. They're, they're, they're trusting that God made a promise. And he's going to fulfill that promise. They're trusting. This sounds crazy because for hundreds of years, there, there's been no king. There's been no kingdom. And now all of a sudden, under Roman rule, and this king, he, Jesus, he's going to grow up constantly through the lens of who people want him to be, never accepting who he actually is. And we find ourselves in that same tension. Jesus says he's the only way to God. Why well, want there to be multiple ways to God? Jesus says that marriage is between a man and a woman. Why well, I don't want it to be between that. Jesus says we're to not commit adultery. We're not to lust. We're not to hate. We're to forgive. All these things. Well, ah, that's not the Jesus I want. You see, what the text is getting at is the Jesus you need. Because he is the only one, verse 21, that will save the people from their sins. He is the only one that can be God with us. And so this tension between the Jesus I want and the Jesus I need. What I need is a king and a savior. Jesus is both. And so when we walk through this book, when we love and accept and praise the Jesus that is, or we continually be angry at Jesus because he's not who we want him to be. He's not the political figure. He's not the affirming, soft friend who encourage us in our pleasantries. I mean, if you, if you look at this in its entirety, Jesus comes and he's telling Israel, you have everything you need. You have the Savior. You're like, no, 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 but we want to be in charge. We want a different king. We want a different governor. We want different rules. We want bloodshed. We want the nations to accept us. And they're focusing on everything they don't have and missing that there is an opportunity for them to have their sins paid for by a perfect, holy Savior. We do the same thing. We look at our world and we cry out to God, but this isn't right, and this isn't right, and this guy's in charge, and the school systems are like this, and my spouse is like this, and my kids, and my job. And it's like, those are all the things you think you need. What you need is Christ. He is with you. He saved you. You have everything you need. Everything you need. Jesus fits the bill. Now, this is what's important. Jesus only fits that bill if we believe in the correct Jesus. 
This is where you have to see these, these two doctrines come together about Christ that are absolutely essential. It's, a, it's what's called in theology the hypostatic union. I know you guys are pumped on that. You've been waiting all sermon to get here, right? It's the union of his divine God nature and the union of his man nature, humanity and deity combined. He's not 50-50. He's 100-100. He is all man. He is all God in one entity. Why is that important? Because if he's not fully man, he cannot be the representative that pays on man's behalf. Man has no one to pay for man if, God, if Jesus is not man. Now, if Jesus is not God, he's not perfect, and he's not able to rise from the dead. He's not able to conquer Satan. So you have no payment for sin on either end. Fully God, fully man. Able to be perfect, able to be our representative in our place. Does what Adam couldn't, does what David couldn't, does what Abraham couldn't, which is be the perfect sacrifice. God provides it, like he told Abraham, in Christ. Now, this is uh, where it gets maybe a little confusing, and I, and I don't want you guys to do this. So just I'm going to give you some tools real quick to think through. The main problem the American church does here is they read his human attributes into his deity attributes. They read his humanity into his deity, and they confuse him. Because if you do that, you'll have a false Jesus. What do I mean? When Luke 2 says that Jesus was presented at the temple, it says that he grew in wisdom, stature, and the favor of God and man. Was that his deity or his humanity? It's humanity. His deity can't grow or it's not deity. Does Jesus' wisdom need to grow in his deity? No. Jesus is all-knowing, true? All-powerful, true? Sovereign king, true. This is why the whole rest of after the gospels, they're like, no, Jesus is the pre-incarnate son of God, like pre-coming to earth. He's in creation. He's over all creation. He's all-powerful. This is why John 1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He's trying to make, no, 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 don't miss. He's God. When he's hungry and needs food, is that his deity that needs food or his humanity? Humanity. When he's in the garden and he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is there any other way for this cup to pass? Deity, humanity, humanity. When he looks at the lame man, he says, get up, your sins are forgiven. Humanity, deity, it's deity. Now you're looking at me like, how in the world does that work? I have no clue. No clue how they both work perfectly together. And that's just some things in the Bible. The Trinity, I don't know how that works perfectly. How does God speak the ocean into existence? I have no clue. No clue. But there's, there's things we, we, you see, but that's how it's written. Born of a woman by the Holy Spirit. The one that was promised from Isaiah 7. God with us. Human. Deity. King. Savior. Fully taking place in Matthew chapter 1. This is the Jesus of the Bible. He is the king that tells us what to do. He is also the king that says, I will pay for your sins. 
He is the king that says, you can know me. And the more you know me, you will love me. And the more you love me, you can trust me. That's the goal of what we're trying to get of Mary and Joseph. Can we trust the way they trusted? Can we look at God and say, you're so great, I will trust you in this way. Because as we get to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, he's going to ask us to do some really hard things. He's going to say, men, don't lust. That's adultery. You want me to do, I can't even lust? What? He's going to say, don't, don't hate in your heart. That's murder. What? I can't hate? The standard he's going to call us to is ridiculous. He's going to say, but that's what it means to follow me. And you're either going to trust that his way is better, that he is who he says he is, and he's deserving of us to change our lives, take shame, bear consequences we don't deserve, take embarrassment, be ridiculed and hated. Are we going to say, I will do that because of who you are? That is exactly what Joseph and Mary have done. God, we trust you. I will take this child. I will marry this woman. We will raise him according to your word. We're actually going to tell people that we have the son of God. Can you imagine that as a parent? What's your kid do? He just made varsity. Oh yeah, my son's God. Right? Like, how does that go in a conversation? Right? And they're just trusting. I don't know. This is what God said. I'm going to trust him. We're going to trust that God keeps his promises. That God is with us. And God will save us. And God knows best. Here's my last illustration before we, before we go. Um, my wife and I both grew up without a dad. And this is different than, than having a bad dad. I'm trying to make this clear. And we've both kind of come to this conclusion. It's, and it's, 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 it's contradictory to your initial way of thinking. It says it's better to grow up with no dad than to grow up with a bad dad. Because the bad dad's there but he's not present, he doesn't love you, he doesn't care, and he's never available. But he was always there. It's easier to look over here and be like, how do you get mad at somebody you don't know? You know, I have abandonment issues and I have to repent of them and they flare up and I get needy and all the fun things. But I don't have this ongoing hatred towards this guy that I don't know. And so when, when you think through it, you're like, man, it, it's better it's better to have not had a dad at all when you think through it than to have this dad that was always there, that never cared, that never loved. In the same way, it's kind of contradictory to your thinking, but think about it. It's the same concept. It doesn't sound right at the beginning, but it's actually right. Is it better to have a Jesus that you want, that looks like you and talks like you and affirms your decisions and gives you multiple ways to heaven, says, you be you, whatever you want, to have the Jesus you want, but that Jesus doesn't save you? Or is it better to have the Jesus that tells you to give up everything, follow him, trust him? You're like, this is hard. This is terrible. It goes against everything you would think. Which is better? It's better to have the one that saves you, isn't it? And, and it's contrary to the thinking. But this is, this is what Jesus is trying to tell them over and over again. I'm here to save you. We don't want you to save us. We want you to dominate the nations. He says, get behind me, Satan. You need to be saved. You need the lamb to take away the sins of the world. 
And there's this constant tension between the Jesus you want and the Jesus you need. And the Jesus you need sounds hard and it sounds depressing and it sounds overwhelming, but is absolutely what is best. And this is the trust that Mary and Joseph choose to walk into. We're going to trust you. We know it sounds crazy. We're going to trust you. We're going to trust that God is with us. Jesus is king. He will pay for our sins. And we'll get to be with him forever. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Will we trust in that way? Some questions for us to walk through. How well can you trace the story of the Bible to this point? What parts do you need to study more and why? Why am I saying that? Because understanding the full plan of God is part of how we know God, then we love God, then we trust him. Because we see God made a promise in Genesis 3. He made a promise in Genesis 12. He made a promise in 2 Samuel 7, a promise in Isaiah. He keeps meeting his promise. He keeps keeping his word. Without having full all of that context, it's hard for us when God says, you need to forgive that person. Like, well, why would I do that? It helps us when we can go to the board and be like, he, he, he keeps his word. He knows best. I'm going to do something that's hard for me. I'm going to trust him. Knowing how God keeps his word consistently, it gives us smaller and smaller chunks to trust him the way Mary and Joseph trust him. You say, okay, God, if this is what you want. Two, how are you currently trusting the Lord? That's essentially what comes down in this path. They're trusting that God's going to keep his word. God's doing the right thing, that God will take care of them. How are you currently trusting him? And currently trusting him might be God tells you to forgive and you don't want to forgive. Like, I'm going to trust you. God tells you not to cheat. And you're like, I want to cheat. He says, no. God says to not have addictions. And you're like, but these addictions make me feel so. No, 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 don't do that. Are you trusting him? Do you have fear like Joseph had fear? And he's like, don't be in fear. Trust me, I'm with you. I'm going to take care of you. Every day should have some type of trust where we're trusting either what the Lord's asked us to do, told us not to do, told us to do, right? Three, what are areas God is asking you to change or trust him that are hard for you? Is there something God's saying, you need to give that addiction up? You need to forgive that person. You need to not let the sun go down on your anger. You need to not have lust in your heart. You need to raise your children in Deuteronomy 6, the ways of the Lord. There are things that you're not doing. And God's like, you need to stop. Like, God, I don't want to stop. And he's like, do you trust me? In the same way, are the things God's telling you to do? Read your Bible. Pray. Be a part of a church. Share your faith. Show love. And I mean, this is part of Mary and Joseph. They're starting a family. They're starting a journey together. They're trusting the Lord and starting something. It's God saying, I need you to start this. I need you to go share your faith with that person. I need you to go walk through this, do this, be here, give this job up, take this job, adopt this child. Whatever it is, God's saying, I need you to start this. I want you. You trust me. Four, how can you use Matthew 1 to encourage other people, even yourself, that God can save and use anyone? Isn't it fascinating that Uriah's wife is a part of the genealogy? That David's affair is part of the genealogy that Jesus comes from? That's mind-blowing, isn't it? 
There's Gentiles and prostitutes and adultery that the Savior comes from that lineage, that Joseph and Mary come from that lineage. That means God can save anybody, can't he? That's the encouragement of the genealogy as well, is that no one gets to say, well, I can't do that. I'm not like Mary. I'm not like Joseph. It's like, no, 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 no. It's not because they were great. It's because God's great. And so the question when God's asking you is like, it's not am I good enough? Is it do I believe God's big enough, good enough, powerful enough to use even someone like me? And here are all these examples of God doing it over and over and over and over again. And his statement to you is he can do it with you too, but you need to trust him. You don't need to trust your, your smarts, your ability, your family tree. All that cray cray on your family tree is fine. God can use it for his glory. He can use it for his glory where you trust him. That genealogy should encourage us. Five, who are the important people in Matthew 1 and why are they important? Okay. Who is David? Who is Abraham? Who is Jesus? Who is Mary? Who is Joseph? Who are these people? Jesus, the king, the savior, God, the faithful father that keeps his promise. Right? Mary, Joseph, the faithful servants that trust the Lord. These are the people we're invited to walk with in Matthew 1. The question is, do we trust that God is good enough and big enough to be with us in the craziest and hardest of times? My hope and prayer is that we will trust that he is always good and always powerful. He sent his son Christ to pay for our sins. Therefore, he is worthy of our trust and he is worthy of any suffering we might go through for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you. And we thank you for your word. That we get to look back in hindsight and see you keeping your promise, keeping your promise, keeping your promise. You say you'll do it, then you do it. You say you'll do it, then you do it. You have every reason to be trusted, to be loved, to be adored. And for that great reason, may we worship you because of your trustworthiness because you keep your promises that you loved us enough to send Jesus to do what we couldn't, to be our savior and to be our king, to rule over all areas of life, to know all things because we don't know all things. May we worship and praise you for the God that you are and what you've done through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.